Um, so today we're continuing to look at Mark's Gospel. If you have a Bible, can I encourage you to guess it out? Dorothy, I wonder if you'd just grab one or two from just behind you outside. And if you'd like a Bible, because we, we're going to dip in and out today So of this big section. We're doing chunks of Matthew. So please don't be embarrassed. Just put your hand up if you haven't got your Bible with you and you'd like to look at a Bible rather than your phone. Please, if you want one, just put your hand up. Thank you. And... Uh, um, What's her name? Dorothy. Dorothy will bring you one. Sorry, that's the state of my brain. Let's take a moment to pray that as we open God's word, he will speak to us this morning. God, we thank you that Jesus came as the living word, but we thank you that you've given us your written word to teach us and to lead us into your truth. So help us, God, this morning as we seek to understand more of this gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Great. So the chunk we're looking at is from chapter 3 and verse 7 of Mark's gospel to the end of chapter 4. We're kind of chunking up Mark's gospel um, through the coming weeks. And we'd encourage you, if you can read through the gospel as we're teaching it week by week, maybe in your own time at home, just to look at that. Who is Jesus? That's one of the questions that we're going to be talking about in these coming weeks and to learn more and dig into Jesus who came and lived among us. That's backwards. I wonder if somebody asked you to tell them about Jesus. Granted, it doesn't happen very often in the UK. But if somebody asked you that question, I wonder what you might say. How would you tell them about who Jesus is? What Jesus did? How do you account for the millions and millions of people who've followed Jesus through the ages since he came to live on earth? and right up to today. The wonderful thing about Christianity, you know, is that we can know God. We can have a relationship with God. It really, it really separates out Christianity from other world religions. God has come in the person of Jesus, and because of Jesus, we can know God. He came and walked first century Palestine, to show us what God is like. <coughs> Hebrews, let's see if I can get this going the right way, no. Hebrews 1 verse 3, the letter to the Hebrews says, Jesus is the exact representation of God. The exact representation. You know, this week, King Charles has been in hospital. I'm sure we all know that if we keep up with the news. Um, and I saw another bit in the press that Edward, his younger brother, was going to be doing, taking up some royal duties to help out during this time. Now, Edward, I think, is a good guy. Um, he's slightly younger. Is he sli slightly bolder, I think? Um, and, and his, you know, I, th I think he's a great guy and he'll do a great job standing in for the king. But is he the exact representation of King Charles? I don't think so. He's a different character. He's a different personality. He's a different person. He's got different gifts and abilities. He's not the exact representation of the king. But Jesus is, Hebrews tells us, the exact representation of who God is. He is God. He is God made flesh. 
to come to live among us. And you know, however long we've been following Christ, there's always more to learn about Jesus. Jesus is the exact representation of God. Susan reminded us in our church members meeting on Thursday night about how Jesus called people to follow him. Many followed, but to some he gave special assignments, like the disciples to go out to teach and preach. And so if you look in that, Jesus chooses the 12 from verse 13 of chapter 3. That's the list. I'm not going to read them all out. Susan went through them on Thursday night of the people that Jesus specially chose to walk with him closely in those days. So I want to just look at through these, um, through these verses, really, about four things that I think we learn about Jesus um, this morning. Um, and I, as I say, I hope you've had some time to read it because we'll be dipping in and out. No? I am going to learn one day how to use the clicker, okay? This is the click. Popularity, okay? This is the first thing. Popularity. What do I mean by that? Well, right from the start of our reading, and Dorothy read it to us in verse 7, Jesus went out to the lake with his disciples, and a large crowd followed him. Okay? There's the large crowd who followed him. They came from all over Galilee. Vast numbers of people came to see him. Jesus had been doing miracles. Last week, David Beasley was talking to us about some of those miracles that Jesus had been doing. And they listened to his teaching. They wanted to know about this new rabbi, um, that people were deserting their livelihoods to follow. Who was this guy? And remember, Jesus didn't have a publicity team or social media or a major advertising budget. His only advertising had been the prophets, John the Baptist, and his social media was literally neighbor telling neighbor. People were thronging to see this new teacher, the carpenter's son, who was proclaiming the kingdom of God. But those eager to listen weren't the only ones in the crowd. This surging popularity of Jesus uh, brought Jewish leaders to see him also. They were feeling that their leverage with the crowd was being somewhat threatened by this guy. Their authority, as David reminded us last week, was dissipating. David said to us last week that Jesus said, they were asking, by whose authority do you do these things? Do you remember that question we learned about last week? By whose authority do you do these things? These leaders were out to engage in some kind of smear campaign in an attempt to quell the popularity of Jesus. Verse 22, if you see verse 22 of chapter 3, it says, see, he's possessed by demons. He's possessed by demons. The, authority of, the authorities of Jerusalem had this ignoble intention to, of defaming Jesus and sabotaging his movement as they saw it. The resistance to Jesus grew in proportion to his popularity. And yet, the sharp rebu- rebuke from Jesus 
insinuates, if you just glance down that chapter, um, Jesus and the Prince of Demons, that far from himself being possessed by Satan, they are the guilty ones of committing the sin. They are the guilty one because they're rejecting Jesus, because they do not recognize the power of God at work. They would stand before judgment because of that. They have refused to accept the power of God at work, and instead they've substituted true faith for mean accusation against Jesus. Jesus is condemning their spiteful denial of the activity of God's spirit at work in his ministry and rejecting the Holy Spirit, as we see, is a terrible sin. I've looked into this a little this week because I think this is a verse that some people trip up on and some Christians worry. They feel guilty. I, I've committed the unforgivable sin, if you, if you read that. And I think sometimes people struggle with that. But, you know, the grace of God, the love of God, the patience of God can never be exhausted by our abundant sinfulness. It can never be exhausted, friends. God forgives what we sometimes feel is unforgivable. Maybe you're sitting here today and maybe you have done something or been involved in something and deep within you, in the pit of your stomach, you feel this is unforgivable. Friends, if you if you feel that, then can I urge you to just come, maybe share that. You don't have to share what it is, but ask somebody to pray with you. We have opportunity for prayer here afterwards because God's abundant love and grace and patience reaches out to us as we, as we come to him. So the crowds here and we, we need to decide either Jesus is the son of God who liberates the possessed or he himself is possessed and an agent of Satan. It's a fairly stark choice, isn't it, which way we go there. Either he's guilty of blasphemy or the theological authorities from Jerusalem that we saw there are. So his popularity divided people. You see that? But my question then was, did Jesus set out to stir up popularity? Mark 1.44, he's healed a man of leprosy, if you remember we started there. He said, don't tell anyone about this, but the man spread the word and large crowds followed. Maybe he was the publicity agent. Um, Jesus often, remember that, reading through the Gospels, says, don't tell people, don't tell people. Sometimes he says, don't tell people, but go to the priests and, and be washed or whatever. But he's very much trying to, you know, stop people going around talking about him. Jesus came to seek and save lost people. He was not on the campaign trail in the way we see some leaders. Aren't we seeing America full on our media at the moment? We can think of some of the leaders there who are definitely on a campaign trail. Um, And, you know, Jesus was not like that at all. So popularity is one of these themes that comes through Mark's gospel and where people responded to his popularity. Secondly, let's look at Jesus beginning to teach in parables. Um, 
excuse me a moment. Last week, uh, we read of his healing works, and now we come into a whole series of Jesus' teaching. Why does Jesus teach in parables? You know, like a story, if you've read some of them, or you've read some this morning. (coughs) Sometimes they seem so hard to understand. I don't know about you, but sometimes I'm a bit flummoxed by what Jesus is really driving at. Now, I want, if you've got your Bible or your phone, turn to chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, because there's thorny little verses here that I want to just touch on for a moment. The, the verses, let me read it in case you haven't got it. Later, when Jesus was alone with his disciples, he said to them, you are permitted to understand the secret of the kingdom of God, but I use parables for everything I say to outsiders so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. And what the scriptures are, verse 12 there, when, I, when they see what I do, they will learn nothing. When they hear what I say, they will not understand. Otherwise, they will turn to me and be forgiven. Seems strange, doesn't it? Didn't Jesus want people to turn to him? Did he want them to be forgiven? You know, I, it comes from, this, this verse comes from Isaiah 6, verse 9 and 10. So it is a quote from another part of scripture. And it's about a faithful prophet who will teach to faithless people. Jesus seems to be saying that there will be those who will understand and believe and get in on what Jesus is doing. But there are those, also those, who will never understand. Reading the commentators about this, they suggest that Jesus is using this in a kind of ironic way. Okay, so I'm going to just suggest the kind of thing they were suggesting here. That they will see but not perceive, hear but not understand, because the last thing they want is to turn and have their sins forgiven. You get that? The irony of that, like, oh, the very last thing they'd want to do is turn from their sins and be forgiven. And that's the kind of suggestion of the interpretation, because I think sometimes we read these and think, well, what does that mean? You know, doesn't he want people to be forgiven? But Jesus knows the heart of man. We read that elsewhere in the Gospels. And he knows that some people will never understand because they don't want to understand. And they certainly don't want to turn and follow Jesus. Maybe you know folk like that, the last thing they want to do is turn and have their sins forgiven. Maybe deep down in your own heart, you know that you might be one of those folk. You sit and listen, but the last thing you really want to do is surrender your life to King Jesus. I believe Jesus uses these parables to plumb the depths, the spiritual perception of his audiences. Who really has ears to hear? Parables are a sort of form of revelation that both reveal the mystery and hide it at the same time. Quite complicated, isn't it? But for those who have ears to hear, they hear the truth in that. So as we read through Mark and we hear more parables, as we will, this form that Jesus taught to teach in, ask yourself, what is God really trying to say to me through this? Ask the Holy Spirit to give you understanding. 
You have to make the investment to understand. Jesus' teaching separated the curious from the serious. It separated those who were seeking a religious sideshow from those who were truly seeking after God. Jesus knew and knows that it needs spiritual discernment to understand Christ crucified and conquering over all. The message remains a scandalous and foolish riddle to those who are being saved, but as we read in Romans, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Listen to what Corinthians says here. 1 Corinthians 1.18, the message of the cross is foolish to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. So friends, we have a God who wants to reveal himself if we want to know him, okay? He re- wants to reveal himself to those who seek him. Jer- um, sorry, Jeremiah 29 says, you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I find that quite a challenge. Do I search for him even now with all my heart? You know, let's ask ourselves, let's pray for that this week. God wants you to know and understand who Jesus is, what his kingdom is about, and how you can get in on it. That's his desire for us. And remember, if you read through this further through the, the parable, the, the parables here, 4 verse 26 in our section today, this growing seed, the silent growing of the kingdom of God, God is at work in ways that we cannot always see. So parables, the method by which Jesus chose to teach much of what he taught in the Gospels. And thirdly, let's look at... Um, his passion for the kingdom. When I first started reading this section to prepare for today, um, one of the first things that struck me was the passion of Jesus for the kingdom, for this new kingdom that was coming in. 3 verse 13 uh, tells us that Jesus called out those he wanted to go with him. He wanted to share his passion for the kingdom with others too. They were to accompany him closely. Recently, I was on a, uh, um, sitting above a beach uh, on a short retreat I was on a, few, a couple of weeks ago, and I saw this person, this is my actual photo, and I um, began to wonder if it was two people. I couldn't quite work it out. And in fact, as they walked, it is two people. But the thing that struck me, that one was walking so closely to the other one that um, you couldn't really tell if there was two or one. My thought as I sat there was that that is what Jesus wants from us. He wants us to walk so closely to him He will lead, he will guide. I kind of thought if I was walking with that guy, I wouldn't have to think about where I was going, where the next hill was, where I I got to. I wouldn't have to think about it because I was walking so closely with my guide. And as we walk closely, 
we as imbibe, if we do that with Jesus, his thinking, his ways, and his passion. Don't you think that the disciples that walked closely with Jesus began to understand how Jesus thought, began to think like Jesus as he walked and talked and teach them, taught them, and as they listened and obeyed? Jesus was passionate about his kingdom. This was his calling, his focus, his ministry. It was why he had come to make known the kingdom. Some people have that special calling, the 12, of the many people who followed. As I say, the 12 were sent to preach. They were focused. Look at 3 verse 20. It says, soon his disciples... Takes a little clicking. Soon his disciples... Soon he and his disciples couldn't even find time to eat. Such was their commitment to making the kingdom known. You can see that I don't follow that closely and I'm not so passionate. I've stopped eating, okay? I just want you to be aware of that. But this was their passion, that they couldn't even find time to eat. They were so focused on making this gospel known. In fact, his family, in verse 21, just there, tried to take him away. Now, the Greek verb here, it actually means by force. They were actually trying to come and grab Jesus and take him away, maybe they were acutely embarrassed by Jesus, what he was saying, what he was doing. I wonder, um, and they, they said that he was out of his mind. I mean, maybe they were concerned that he was out of his mind and they wanted to protect him and keep him, but I kind of think they were maybe a little more embarrassed that who, what on earth was he saying? He grew up in, you know, Nazareth. What on earth is he saying? I wonder if anyone has thought we were out of our minds because of our passion for the gospel, for the kingdom of God. Anyone ever taken a step of obedience and others thought you were crazy? I think the nearest time I can recall something like that was I, uh, I used to work as a social worker in social services for a number of years. And... Um, I sensed that God was calling me out to uh, work in another way for, for a Christian charity. And um, I, I kind of expected that my colleagues would not really get it, and they didn't. They thought, actually, I was having some sort of breakdown. That Actually, one said to me, we kind of thought you were having some sort of breakdown, but you look better every day, um, which was interesting. Um, the thing that surprised me, though, was my home group those close to me who also didn't really get it. And they kind of thought it was a bit strange. And I don't know whether they felt a bit uncomfortable or whether they felt a bit challenged that I was taking such a step. Um, I don't know. But it was the nearest thing I could come to think about it when, you know, Jesus' family tried to take him away and help to calm him down because maybe he was being a bit overly passionate about all this stuff. Jesus, in verse 31 onwards, is saying to his family that he had to keep the main thing the main thing. It was not that he wanted to dissociate from his family or that he didn't care for his family. 
I think we see that at the crucifixion, when he takes the opportunity to say, John, this is your mother, mother, this is your son. He, he paired his mother into a caring relationship because he knew he was going to be crucified. He was being crucified at that time, and he cared. And yet here he's saying that those who do his will, who follow and obey Jesus, get in on the family. We get in on the family if we follow and obey him. Friends, we have a family that is broader than our biological families. That is the truth. We know our families are precious and thank God for them. But our family, the family of God, is broader than our biological family. Weren't we being family last night when we were doing the gay Gordon up and down here or, you know, doing our Spanish bingo or whatever it was? You know, we... We shared across cultures. We welcomed one another in God's name. And we thank God for that. And as we seek to do that continually, those who do the will of the Father get in on the family. That's what Jesus said. The disciples' task was to be with Jesus, to accompany him, and they too shared his passion for the kingdom. God invites us, friends, to join in his work. I know that Many of us know this, you know, we're trying to do it in sharing the good news of the kingdom. The parable of the farmer scattering the seed, and it's at the start of chapter four, if you glance at it there, it says that the farmer, verse 14, the farmer plants seeds by taking God's word to others. I believe that that's us. It's not Jesus coming to plant seeds. He says, we take the seeds out by taking God's word to others. Friends, We are those people, or are we? We are the ones scattering the seeds, or are we? Let's just ask ourselves that question. Maybe you feel unable, or you feel discouraged about sharing the seeds with others. It is a good reminder that the kingdom grows secretly and underground, and we don't see what God is doing. God is at work, even if we feel discouraged, even if we feel, I've prayed for this person for so long, I've shared Jesus with this person, I've invited them to things, and we don't feel we get anywhere. God is at work, even when we don't see the ripened grain. I was listening to uh, Lectio 365 on my phone this week, as some of you may do that daily little listening, and there was a sentence that struck me. Jesus didn't hesitate to speak to the people he met because the invitation to know God is too important to be watered down and too urgent to leave to another day. It just kind of struck me when I heard that. I thought, do I believe that? This invitation, the invitation we give to others, is too important to be watered down and too urgent to leave to another day. I wonder where we stand in relation to Jesus today. Are we walking so close that people might only see one person? Or are we walking some way off across the beach? Have we lost our passion for the kingdom? And lastly, um, let's touch on Jesus' power. 
We have seen Jesus doing acts of mercy. We've read about healings last week, healing people, freeing people. This was not satanic work he was being accused of. And you could read more about what Jesus says about that in chapter 3, if you'd like to. With the advent of the kingdom of God, the battle is waged against all that the enemy would throw at us, okay? The kingdom of Satan, which has enslaved all of humanity. That's what we... That's what we read in scripture. It reminded me of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where the White Queen reigns. Do you remember? Always winter, but never Christmas. All under her domain. That picture that C.S. Lewis created of the world enslaved. Friends, we stand on this side of Christmas. The thaw has begun. The inbreaking of the kingdom of God is happening. Friends, if you don't see it, pray that God would open your eyes to see where that is happening because that is the truth. God is at work in his world, releasing people, healing people, forgiving people. Hallelujah. Mark 3:11 We even see evil spirits obeying the orders of Jesus. He reprimands the spirits and tells them to come out of people. And 1 verse 25 that came out of a man. Um, do you know more is at stake here than Jesus simply trying to avert a premature disclosure of his identity, who he really was. The ravings of demons were never going to be the ones that were the agent of revelation of who Jesus was. And his rebuke shows his power over the work of Satan in people's lives. The muzzling of demons, like the quelling of the storm, if you get to the end of that chapter 4, you'll read Jesus calming the storm. Jesus had mastery over both the demons who were at work and the powers in the world. This is a sign that Jesus had overmastered both. He expels and silences demons with a word, and he speaks, and the storm is stilled. Friends, God is still at work in the world today, in his power today. I wonder, I ask myself the question, do I want the Holy Spirit to rule in my life today? Or do I somehow resist his power, his working in my life. Jesus comes today to reveal his kingdom, to show us his love and compassion, to demonstrate his power, and to call us to walk so closely with him, sharing his passion for a world in need today. And he says, anyone, anyone who does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. When we do his will, we get in on the family. Let's pray that we'll live up to our calling as members of God's family. Let's just take a moment to pray. We are so grateful for your word, Lord God, that teaches us, that encourages us, that reminds us of your power at work, even when we don't see it, even when we don't want to surrender to your power at work in our lives, that you remain constant, faithful, and that you're passionate about your kingdom coming.
We pray that in the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done. God, may that be our prayer this day and in this coming week. For the glory of your name, we pray. Amen. I was going to say, as the band comes, and they're there.